Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. My name's Corey. So glad that you have joined us this morning for our service. We are going to be in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 18 through 27. So please get your, the scriptures open in Mark 12, 18. And that's where we're going to be living today. Now, there are a couple other places that we're going to find ourselves. And uh, let me tell you, when I tell you this, don't, don't feel bad. You're, there's no chance that you're going to be able to get to all the places that we're going to look at. So just keep your finger right in Mark 12 and enjoy that space. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. This morning, as we get into this, I, I kept on thinking about this one particular issue. We live in a world that has issues with Christian belief. That's probably not super uh, confusing to anybody. We're probably all on the same page here. That if you hold to a traditional Judeo-Christian worldview, a, 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 a Christian ethic, you're probably not on the right side of a lot of conversations. Right side is, is a debatable term, certainly. The world believes that Christians to be, are restrictive or we're old-fashioned or that we're on the wrong side of history, uh, that we're not progressing in the ways that our culture and our cultural melting pot in North America is progressing. My favorite criticism I've heard of Christians is this one, that we're fun vampires. <laughs> As vampires suck blood, Christians just, like they're just not fun, right? We suck fun. And while the, this is clearly a misunderstood reality, the, the reality of one area of life, one area of Christian doctrine is something that everybody hopes is true. Eternity, right? And when we go to funerals and we have conversations with people after somebody dies, we all want to hear and are hoping to hear the same things, that this person's in a better place. And regardless of where you fit on the issues of Christian Judeo ethic, you probably fit into that kind of category when you come across people as you're having this, congregation, this conversation. In a recent study in the States, Canada doesn't usually do these studies, 80% of Americans believe in some sort of life after death. 9% are unsure, which only means that 11% of Americans at the time that this study was done believe that there is no life after death. And so the belief in this Christian tradition or this Christian viewpoint or this historic Christian doctrine is that we have still got this rooted in our society's understanding and understanding our society's beliefs around what happens to us after we die. So the title of today's message is this, Hope for Future Glory, better than we imagine. And it's going to be, I think, very clear to you as to why I'm saying that. So would you stand as we read the text this morning? This is Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. So we honor God's word. Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that a man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, this woman died also. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the big idea today that I want you to grapple with is that Jesus' certain conviction of heaven gives us unshakable hope. 
Jesus is certain about this reality. And as we get into the text, I think you're going to be very, uh, it's going to be very easy for you to pick this up. Uh, uh, somebody uh, once said to me a few months ago, actually, uh, I really like when you preach because you make things simple. And I said, that's because I'm a simple person and I can't come up with anything clever or anything really important to say. The only thing that matters as preachers is that we say what God has already said. So here's the text. Then the Sadducees, we're going to talk about them, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the two groups of the religious leaders and religious elite inside of the kingdom of Israel. The Pharisees were kind of like the, uh, the cultural pastors of the day, if you kind of want to use that terminology, where the Sadducees were, as most scholars suggest, were kind of the aristocrats that rose to prominence and kind of inserted themselves into the legal system. And the, the Pharisees were more concerned with the tradition of the law. The Sadducees were what we call Hellenistic. A lot of them were very influenced by Greek culture or Greek philosophy. And here's the major differences between the two as we see them in the scriptures. The Pharisees accepted all of the Old Testament, so all the 39 books of the Old Testament, where the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of Moses. This is going to be very important to the argument that Jesus lays out later. The Pharisees believed in spiritual forces in terms of angels and demons, while the Sadducees largely denied the existence of the angels and demons. While they might be present somewhere, they weren't super active in the life of the world. Pharisees believed in the complete sovereignty of God, that God was ruling and reigning, while the Sadducees, because of their Hellenistic perspective, would often view this as human reason or the will of humanity was moving uh, history forward. The Pharisees believed, this is the key for today, believed in a resurrection after death, and the Sadducees completely just denied it because they were focused on the here and now, only the physical. So they come to Jesus with this question, and hilariously, they bring him a question about something that they don't believe. So why would they do that? They're trying to trap him. In the whole context of Mark chapter 12, well, starting in the first half, the second half of Mark chapter 11, the groups of people have been coming to Jesus while he's been in the temple courts and accosting him with questions, trying to trap him or trip him up theologically so they could bring some sort of either legal accusation or spiritual accusation against him so they could arrest him and then get rid of him. So here's what they bring. And I'm not going to go through this all, but I'm going to give you uh, the, the Corey Brown paraphrase Bible edition. Uh, they said, teacher, which means rabbi. And then they go, Moses wrote for us. What do they believe is the word of God, the Sadducees? Only the first five books, right? So they're going to go to what Moses had said, and they bring about what's called a Leverite law. And this is actually found in Deuteronomy 25. This issue that if a woman has a husband who dies and has not sired a child, has not given an heir then it's the responsibility of the next brother in line to marry that widow and sire an heir for his older brother. So they bring this idea about saying, Jesus, here's what's going on. Here's a story. Help us sort this out, teacher, because we have a question that actually doesn't have anything to do with marriage, but everything to do with the resurrection. What happens when a lady who's been married seven times to seven different men and has no children, who's she going to be married to later? Who's she going to be married to in this resurrection state that you continue to go on about? So they go on this hypothetical story about an actual law that gives specific instructions, trying to put Jesus in a position where he is now stuck in an unsolvable or an unwinnable scenario. Any Star Trek fans in the room? I'm not one, but I like the Kobayashi Maru 
Star Wars is better. You got lightsabers. It's a whole thing. But in the resurrection from the dead, as Jesus had been publicly teaching, they're now bringing against him this complicated story, this unwinnable scenario. The idea that they're posing to Jesus from a theological perspective is actually quite interesting. And it's generally what Christians get hung up on when we get to this text. Is there going to be marriage in heaven? So the story goes, man marries a woman, they have no children, he dies. Next brother's still living in the land, so he has to marry the widow, and then he dies and there's still no children. And the third and the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. So in the resurrection, if there is one Jesus, who is this woman going to be married to? Now, whether or not there is marriage at the resurrection is, of course, of secondary importance to the text. Because the issue that's being raised here by the Sadducees is, honestly, a pretty good plan. How can they corner this teacher into an area where he can't possibly have a legitimate answer? How could they get Jesus to say something or, or kind of twist the ideas of Deuteronomy 25 and the Leverite law to make it seem like he's either discrediting the law or he's just going to shirk on his teachings about a resurrection state? We're going to discuss this a little bit later, but with their attack going towards Jesus, bringing difficulties about this unwinnable scenario, they believe they've got him euchred. How could they not? Like if, if somebody came up to you and said, well, here's this whole story and all the ways that it doesn't work and help me figure it out, teacher. All of us would probably not really want to be in that situation. They feel like they've got him stuck. He's in a corner. There's no way that he can get out. What does Jesus do when he's in a corner? When there's, he's got to play defense. If you read through the texts of the gospels, Jesus actually never plays defense. He actually goes on the offensive, especially in terms of the last week of his life in the, in the, in the uh, temple courts and in the Passion Week. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you, oh, this is a big fight statement. You do not know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Whoa. Remember, who's Jesus talking to? The Sadducees, who are part of the legal Sanhedrin, the, the right side, to their perspective, of the legal system in Israel. They're, he's now just said to them, you have no idea what you're talking about. So he asked the rhetorical question, because he's implying with his question that they don't know the scriptures, because remember, they only believe that the five first books of the Old Testament are God's word. And so Jesus says, you're denying the other 34 that speak to some of these realities. And because you don't acknowledge the scriptures, you don't acknowledge the power of God. You don't understand or have seen the things that I have done. And then Jesus says this, look at the tense of the word. This is a present future reality. When the dead rise, so he's making a statement of now, this is a certainty that is going to happen later. It's not if, it's not a question mark for Jesus. There's no possibility that he's going to shirk the responsibility on his teaching. When the dead rise, and then he answers the question that most of us are most interested when we get to this passage. They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus does this. He tells the Sadducees that they are both ignorant of the scriptures, which is true because they deny the 34 other books of the Old Testament. And then he says, because you reject the Old Testament, you also reject the fact that God has the life power in himself. Now, they should have understood this because in the very first beginnings of the Bible, what we have is that God breathes out air or breath or life into dust and creates life. So if the author of life doesn't have power after death, we've kind of got a problem here, right? 
So the Sadducees, to Jesus, don't know the scriptures because they don't, and they disregard the power of God because they disregard the scriptures. Does it make sense? We understand the argument? Now it says, we're going to be like angels. Two thoughts about this. We are not going to be like angels in the cultural sense, okay? So think of, uh, if, if, you're a, if you're a millennial, then you know this reference, or older or millennial, the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial. You know what the, the it's, it's heavenly, so creamy, it's heavenly, whatever. Um, bad depiction of heaven. Uh, nor is our understanding of, of angels to be like the uh, Touched by an Angel series or Angels in the Outfield for anybody who's an 80s kid. Uh, we have this kind of cultural perspective on who the angels are and what they do. And so to us, we think, well, when Jesus says this, we're going to be like the angels. That's kind of a letdown. But in reality, what Jesus is saying is he's using this part of the argument to argue for the previous. Angels don't marry, so when we go to eternity, we're going to be like them, we're not going to marry. Now, for those of us who want this to be the focus of the message, there are a lot of great books and a lot of great commentaries written just on verse 25 that I would love for you to go and look at because that's actually not the thrust of the passage. Whether marriage is or is not part of the eternal plan of God after our, our lives here on earth and Jesus has made it pretty clear that that's not the indication that he's going to give. There doesn't seem to be marriage after our lives on earth. And now, from a marriage perspective, which you're, gonna, you're getting this for free. This is not actually part of the text. What is the purpose of marriage? To point to the reality that there's a covenant relationship between Christ and the church. When we're with Jesus in eternity as the full bride of Christ at the supper table of the Lamb, we're not going to need the same representation because who are we witnessing it to? We're going to have the, pers the perfect perspective on what we're actually doing here on earth as we do marriage. We're not going to need it in the same way. We're actually, as Jesus says, we're not going to need it at all. Now, that's not Jesus devaluing marriage or misrepresenting the importance of marriage, not at all. But Jesus wants them to understand that when this part is the issue that everybody needs to focus on. The fact that the dead are going to rise and your perspective about what that means is actually what's wrong. The Sadducees don't understand what's coming because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Then look at what Jesus does. He says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in where? Say it out loud. Book of Moses. What did they believe was the only revealed word of God? Just the books of Moses. What's Jesus doing? He's picking a fight. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Yes. In the account of the bush, who was the primary actor in the, in the first five books of Moses? Moses. So they're taking him to their guy. Remember I said at the beginning, they're, they're trying to trap Jesus on their terrain, on an issue that they don't actually believe. And so Jesus does the same, and he says, okay, guys, you don't believe this? That's fine. Um, I'm going to take you to your dude. And let's see what he says about this. In the account of the burning bush and how God said to Moses, what does he say? I am. Now, if you understand biblical or um, kind of systematic theology, you know that the statement, I am, is not just simply, I am this, or I am Corey, or I am uh, going to this place on Wednesday. This I am statement from God is actually very specific. Because later on in the text of the burning bush, when Moses says, who am I supposed to say has sent me? He says, you are to say that I am sent you. But look at what he puts I am alongside. I am, remember the when conversation before? 
I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There are two important arguments that are happening here. The first is the grammatical argument. So it's Jesus uses the present tense form of the Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 passage, where God says, I am, present tense. When Moses came to the burning bush, were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still alive? No, it's not your question. They're not alive, and God says he is the God of those people. So if God is the God of the already dead patriarchs to Moses, when he shows up, what Jesus does is he uses the same argument now several hundred years later and says, guys, do you not remember that God was the God of these people when they were dead? Are you not understanding that the resurrection has to take place because God said he already was the God of the dead people, the dead patriarchs of your faith? The words God speaks to Moses about who he is is a present tense verb saying, I am this God. Now, the second argument is the theological point, that God doesn't break covenant with something as simple as death. Well, death to us is the, the overwhelming and the worst possible thing that we can experience in our lives, we can rest assured that God's view of death doesn't separate us from the covenant he's made with his people. So if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the time of Moses, and they were already dead, then, God, then Jesus just says, this, is, this was true then, it's true now. You can trust me in this. One commentary says it this way, it's the message of Exodus 3, 6 that cannot, uh, cannot be that the living God revealed himself to Moses as the God of the dead. Rather, he makes himself known to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the faithful, covenant-keeping, and living God who is always the God of the living. So what's the argument? Just because those guys died didn't mean that God is not any longer in relationship with them. Because they had faith in the God who keeps his promises, death wasn't going to stop that. It wasn't going to separate that. So it's because the Sadducees reject a God of power who can raise dead bodies to life or continue in relationship with those who have died physically in the afterlife. In the resurrection that Jesus says exists, they disregard that. And so for that reason, they don't know the power of God. It's a pretty great argument, really. This is what Jesus closes off with. He says, he, being God, is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Who's he talking about? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. So for that reason, you are badly mistaken. God is not the God of the dead. Actually, death is actually the complete antithesis of the character of God. It's the, fir it's the, it's the only thing that is actually fully against his character. Because any of the things that are against God and his design for human flourishing, as the scripture says, leads to death. Sin, when it's full grown, leads to death. Because death is not the equal enemy of God, but it's the enemy of our souls. It's the enemy against what God has ordered. It's the enemy against who we were designed to be. Meaning all that the covenant people that God had redeemed holding to his promises that he was going to make a way, that he was going to send Messiah, that he was going to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt and from the oppression of slavery. All the promises that God made through covenants, he still keeps them now. Tim Keller, my absolute favorite author, says, notice that Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death like the Greeks did. Who are the Sadducees fans of? The Greeks. Sadducees like these guys. 
That's a long word, right? On the idea of, the, uh, of being an immortal as part of us. Here's what he's arguing. Nothing about us is what God hangs our immortality on. He rests in the commitment of God to us. Jesus rests in God's commitment to us that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very fat, powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who will not, cannot, at our death, scrap which that is precious to him. Death doesn't separate us. Death doesn't separate it. So what does this actually mean? It's a pretty incredible story that we have here, right? Like while the question that everybody gets focused on is the marriage at the resurrection part, as we've seen through the text, that's not actually the argument that anybody's trying to make. The question that they raise is trying to trap Jesus with something that they really want him to deny, his teachings on the resurrection. Because of Jesus' own words, we can for sure argue that marriage doesn't exist in the new heavens and the new earth. And while that's sad for us to think about, I want you to think about what the title of the message was. Hope for future glory. It's better than we imagine. We take our mindset, our construct, our thinking into the future in a, in a broken mindset. We don't understand what it is actually going to be when we get to heaven, when we're with Christ in perfect paradise in his presence with God forever. We can't put our minds and our ideas and our thinking into that future space because we haven't experienced it. So anything that doesn't line up with what is our best representation, our, our deepest hopes, our deepest desires that could possibly be unmet in eternity, we think of it as being bad or we think of it as being wrong. But instead what Jesus argues is, no, there's actually something better because God is the God of life. So as I was studying and realizing that this text had nothing to do with what I thought I was going to be studying, I came across a few ideas for myself that were quite alarming, actually. Here's the first idea. I have a very underdeveloped view of heaven. Very underdeveloped view. I actually don't think about it a lot. And I think if we're honest, most of the time, excuse me, most of the time when we think about eternity, when we think about heaven, is because somebody close to us has died. That's generally the, 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 most, the most common of times when we're going to think about it. Or maybe our worship team's leading us in a song that talks about heaven. We're like, huh, I haven't really thought about that for a while. Some kind of thing like that. Second thing that I started to think is that we all fall into these misaligned views of heaven from our culture, and we tend to buy into them because we don't have a category for it otherwise. It's like the Philadelphia cream cheese thing, or my favorite one is the depiction of the cupids on the clouds playing harps and diapers. Like anybody actually thinks that that's a, a viable or good view of heaven. And then third, I think that I need to delight more in heavenly realities. And as Pastor Kevin led us through that idea of being heavenly minded last week, as opposed to being earthly minded, I think that's exactly what Jesus allows for this argument to continue and probably why Mark pairs these things back to back. It's to get us onto a perspective of being part of God's kingdom means that we're focused on the things of God's kingdom and not the things of this earth, which are, in his words, going to pass away. So here's what I wanna do in the remainder of the time that we have this morning. I'm not going to be exhaustively be able to explain all the beliefs around heaven, especially the ones that the Bible isn't clear about. Because there's a lot of people that have different views on heaven, different views on eternity. And, but I, what I do want to do is I want you to see things that are clear in the scripture. So if you've got your notes, get them out. There's some fill in the blanks. But I also, uh, to, to Madeline's chagrin, I made her put all the texts that were representative of that under your notes. And here's what we're going to do. 
you're going to take that home and you're going to read those passages to support the argument that I'm going to make. There's no way that I can go through them all. I'm not going to try. Here's the first thing. Jesus promises a real and physical resurrection. A real and true physical resurrection. There's nothing about what Jesus teaches inside of the New Testament that makes us believe that the idea of future things is somehow going to be the pie in the sky, uh, spirit only sort of idea that most of our culture thinks about when we think, well, we go to heaven and we're just going to be spiritual bodies. Let me say this as clearly as I can. People have a wrong depiction of how Jesus exists now. He is physical now. The resurrected body of Christ is physical now. He remains physical. At his ascension, he doesn't become a different spiritual version of himself. The disciples touched him. He ate with them. Jesus is physical now. And because Jesus is our head, as Colossians 1 says, he's the firstborn among the, uh, among the resurrection, and because he continues to promise that we are going to be like him, we can be assured that we will have a physically resurrected body as well. So here's some passages that speak about these things. I'd like to highlight a couple for you. Just listen to these. This is 1 John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John argues for a physical, physically resurrected Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are dead in Jesus, those who are alive when Jesus returns, they're not going to be resurrected in the same sense because they haven't died. But those who had died, believing and trusting in Christ, their bodies will be physically resurrected. Philippians 3, this is one of the biggest arguments for it. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, the authority of him being God, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his in a glorious body. We get it? Jesus argues for a physical resurrection. You want one more? I'll, do, I'll give you one more. Romans 8 says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as if it were in the pains of childbirth right up now until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Interesting that Paul doesn't argue for soul. He makes a physical resurrection connection to it. This is just a sampling. Like, look at all these passages here that you get to go home and read. Oh, there's my pen. I, I, I encourage you, do it. Go home and read them. If you're not convinced, Jesus promises a physical resurrection. It's a certainty. He doesn't make this up in terms of like, this is just something that we can believe. It's, this is what Jesus taught. This is the central theme of the New Testament church, that Jesus was resurrected bodily. That anybody, and I'm going to make a bold statement, anybody that disregards the physical resurrection of Jesus cannot claim to be a Christian. It is the central tenet of the faith. Here's the next one. Heaven is more glorious than our world hopes. Just think about all the ways that our world views heaven to be. Think about all the ways that they're hoping that eternity is a paradise. That's true. That it's going to be wonderful, that it's going to be free from sickness and disease. Yes. But heaven isn't heaven without God. It's not. Here's some things that I'm not going to read all the passages. You can go home and do that again. But here's a few of the themes that come up in these passages about this idea. 
Heaven is being prepared for us by Christ himself. That's what John 14 says. That Jesus is preparing a place for us that we, when we die, we can go to be with him or that when he returns, he will take us to be with him there. Heaven is also only for those who have been born again. Heaven is also seen as a glorious city where its gates after the, after the judgment will never be shut. It holds the water of life and everlasting life. It's where God's throne is. It's a place of perfect unity and perfect peace, full of the praises and the worship of God, which has no death and no crying or pain or sickness or disease or suffering any longer. As John says, for the old order of things has gone away. When people in our culture just think of heaven as like, oh, I'm going to retire in Florida on a golf course, which I would love, by the way. That's a really, really crappy substitute for the fact that Jesus is the central figure of heaven. That when we go to heaven, it's not so that we can enjoy ourselves and sit back and relax and do nothing. Instead, to partner with Jesus in the right rulership of all creation. The beauty of heaven is not perfection if ultimately Jesus isn't what perfect looks like. John Piper, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, says often that heaven without God would be actually be hell. And interestingly, that's exactly what our world has tried to create. Here on earth, a vision of a heaven, of a utopia, without the God who made it. Trying to make a heaven or a utopia or a perfection in our own image so that we can be God and we can relegate God to just some figment of our imagination. At best, or at worst, a fairy tale we tell children to persuade and confuse them. No, it's real and it's coming. And that's the last point. Heaven is not our final home. Now, there's been a lot of conversations about this over church history, but the text is very, very clear. And regardless of how you feel about the end time stuff and how that all is going to get played out, which nobody has the corner on, is this idea that there is coming a new physical creation. Whether that's that God is going to redeem and restore this creation, or it's going to actually be a total wipeout of everything that has been made, and God is going to reorchestrate creation again. That's the side that I would tend to fall on. There is a new creation coming. Heaven is not the intermediary point. It is the present part where, as Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means that when we die, our souls, our spirits go to be with Christ, awaiting the final judgment of Revelation. And then when that happens, God is going to, as we're going to read in Revelation 21, bring about a new creation so our physical selves can exist in a perfected state far beyond what we understand now. This is what Revelation 21 says. John, after he saw all the things that he saw in the battle of Armageddon, he says, I see a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. See, when we think about heaven, we think about it in terms of just like the spiritual place, but it will be physical because Jesus promises a physical resurrection. It's going to be far better than what our world argues for or even hopes for. But also, it's going to be very, as I've studied, as I've figured this out, a better version of what God already created in Eden. Now, the Eden story is interesting, and we're going we're to park here for a couple minutes before we're done. We are told several times throughout Revelation that we should expect the world to be ordered in the new creation being very good. And the wording that is used by John is specific. What else was called very good in the scriptures? The creation account. 
That when God does his crowning achievement and creates humanity, he says, we have made them in our image. We have made male and female in our image and they are to rule the land under our authority, under God's authority. And God says, and it was very good when it's all finished. Now, there was something that happened in the Garden of Eden that ruined all that. The disobedience and rebellion of Adam and Eve against God's right rule and reign. But then God does something amazing after that. And we generally focus on the negative because rightly, we destroyed all of ordered creation with our sin. But there's something else that God does in Genesis 3. God dispels humanity for their own protection from the Garden of Eden. Did you know that? See, we often focus on the, just the negative side, but there's also the positive. Look what's, what is said in Genesis 3. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and do what? Take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the one that we had with our, uh, our, our super ancient grandparents, Adam and Eve, have really blown it. We ate from that one in a rebellion against God and his right rule and reign and order in the world. And so God in his grace dispels Adam and Eve from Eden so we can't live in a damned state forever. While death is our enemy, it's also a grace from God that we can't live inside of this state forever. By eating of the tree of life, we would remain in that damned state, remain apart from God, remain in our broken condition. How do I know that that's the argument that John is making? Well, because he says it in Revelation 22. Because the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, which we actually can't eat from now because the old order of things has passed away. Because sin and death and suffering is no more. Jesus is going to make it all right. In the same way that Eden was a physical, real place and a designed to be our first home, Jesus in the new earth will replace it and give us a home that is designed to be our everlasting dwelling. Where we can reach out and eat from the tree of life without any of the burden or possibility of ruining anything any longer. That's what we are being given. When Jesus argues for a physical resurrection in Mark chapter 12, what he's saying to the Sadducees is you don't realize what is coming and so you deny the power of God. You don't understand what we are going to look for. You don't understand what we are hoping for. And I'm telling you, it's no longer hope. It's a legitimate, true, physical reality that we will enjoy forever in the presence of God. See, because Jesus has certain conviction of heaven. There's no dissuading him. There's no getting him to think that he's wrong about it. Even with the unwinnable scenario of this woman who's been married seven times with no kids. Regardless of the trap they try and put Jesus in, he is certain about this one thing. Well, all things, but primarily this one thing. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He told his disciples three times, I'm going to go. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and authorities. I am going to suffer under Pontius Pilate. I am going to die. And then I will be raised to life. Jesus never makes the argument that he's going to die without the, like, without the confirmation of the fact that he's going to rise again. And so because of Jesus' certain conviction of heaven, of eternity, of the new Jerusalem, of the new earth, we also can have unshakable hope. But we have to trust Jesus with, with, with what he says and not make up our own versions. Our own versions are very poor options 
what he gives us in this text is that God is the God of the living. Death does not separate us from that. And that he welcomes us into his presence for everything that he wants to give us out of his love and grace towards humanity. And this is good news. So would you pray with me? Father, would you allow us the grace to long for this day? To trust Jesus with the future? Because Christ was certain about his beliefs in the face of opposition, in this kind of legal sense as we read in Mark 12, because he was certain about the resurrection and God's power to bring it about, so too can we be certain and trust him. So Father, just as God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present now, even though they are long gone, that he's the God of Moses, that you are the God of David, and you are the God of all those who trust you in faith, that you're the God of the 12 disciples, you're the God of Paul, you're the God of the church, you're the God of our history. We can know that ultimately what you say will be done is going to happen, and we can trust you with that. So give us unshakable hope. And when we doubt, can we trust you that because you are certain, we can trust your certainty and not our own. I pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.